In our Vespers services, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a document that was produced at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And the Heidelberg Catechism explains for us uh, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Sacraments, and the Apostles' Creed, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And we are presently partway through a series on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to look tonight in particular at the Sixth Commandment, which is explained for us in Lord's Day 40. And I will ask the questions, and if you could respond with the answers as they are projected above me. What does God require in the Sixth Commandment? You shall not murder. I am not to dishonor, hate, and injure, or kill my neighbor, by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to obey all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the unknown bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the roots of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire for revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. And we're going to focus especially tonight on this final question and answer, question and answer 107. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. And for our Bible text, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, where Jesus explains the meaning of this commandment. Matthew 5, we're going to begin our reading at verse 21 and read to the end of verse 26. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. 
Bible has some very interesting commands. And one of my favorite is be angry. Now, some of you are sitting here tonight and you're wondering, well, where in the Bible does it say that? But it's a very literal translation of the beginning of Ephesians 4.26, where Paul says, be angry. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, finally, a command I can easily obey. But you need to hear the rest of the verse. Because Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. And that, of course, makes it much more difficult to obey. What is anger? Well, anger is a spontaneous response of feeling that seizes us. It is, as I've said before, a healthy emotion that serves a very positive function in our lives. Much like pain, it alerts us that something is not right. And there are many reasons why a person might be justly angry. If you are mistreated by an individual, you are rightly ang angry. If you are the victim of injustice, you are rightly provoked to anger. The problem arises, however, when we indulge the feeling. The problem arises when we embrace anger, when we let the fire of anger burn within us. And what keeps the fire of anger burning within us is often a wounded ego, a feeling of self-righteousness. And if we allow that fire of anger to keep burning within us, we become, over time, angry people. Jesus in Matthew 5 does not want us to become angry people, and he teaches us that this, in fact, is ultimately the concern of the sixth commandment, do not kill. This commandment, do not kill, does not simply forbid homicide, but it goes to the deep root of homicide, which is hatred and contempt. And Jesus, in fact, says that hatred and contempt are kinds of murder. And so does the Apostle John when he says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Jesus does not want us to indulge the feeling of anger, does not want us to embrace anger, and neither does the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in one place says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not go to sleep angry. In other words, do not let the, the fire of anger, which might be legitimately stoked, do not let it keep burning, but put it out. Or he says, you give the devil a chance. And if you, if you give the devil a chance, you have hell to pay for. I'm very fond of something that Dallas Willard says about anger in this connection. He says, he says, there is nothing that you can do with anger that you can't do better without anger. Think about that and ask yourself whether that is true. I think it is. There is nothing you can do with anger that you can't do better without anger. 
Jesus is concerned about the roots of murder, the roots of homicide, anger, and contempt. But as you're listening tonight, you may be wondering, well, then how do we respond properly to mistreatment? How do we respond properly to injustice? And what Jesus recommends in the Sermon on the Mount is persistent love. And this is ultimately what the Sixth Commandment wants from us. It wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think that the Heidelberg Catechism in Question and Answer 107 does a brilliant job making this point. And if we could project that answer, Question 107, Answer 107 from the Catechism. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. I think that is exactly right. So tonight, we are going to learn how to love our neighbors as ourselves, and I'm going to suggest three steps. First of all, experience God's love. Secondly, embody God's love. Thirdly, expand God's love. Now, I'm very, very nervous about Pastor Hilmer leaving. Because the great gift of Pastor Hilmer was an ability to preach clearly and concisely in a way that is perfectly understandable to everyone. Things that have never been said about my preaching. And I always took some consolation in the fact that because Hilmer was so clear, I didn't have to be. And I would say to myself, well, if nobody's understanding me, at least they're understanding Pastor Hilmer. Something I won't be able to say very soon. And so I said to myself this past week, I've got to do better. I've got to be clear and concise, have nice points, have slides that I can project so that maybe I can approach that high standard that Pastor Homer set. So you'll have to judge whether that's the case. Three steps to loving our neighbors as ourselves. First, experience God's love in Christ. Humanity is sinful, twisted, distorted, perverted, and the amazing thing is that Jesus himself, the Son of God incarnate, was willing to lay down his life for you and me, twisted, distorted humans that we are. He loved us to such a great extent that he went to the cross, experienced that desolate agony taking our place, bearing our sin, dying our death. And I was so struck uh, this morning when Pastor Hilmer was so eloquently preaching on Isaiah 53. All of these words that are used of Jesus in Isaiah 53, rejected, despised, oppressed, punished, stricken, smitten, afflicted, bruised, pierced. And why? Well, for your and my sins, 
and for your and my transgressions. And if we believe in the cross and believe that Jesus died on the cross out of love for you and me, we experience his love. And when we experience his love, it changes us, which is to say that God's love in Christ empowers us. Anger is debilitating. Fear is crippling. But the Apostle John says that perfect love casts out fear. And I think we could say perfect love casts out anger. And as we experience God's love for us in Christ, we are empowered to cast out fear, anger, and contempt. So we are to experience God's love. I don't know where I am in my notes. How does this happen? See? Um, the love of God in Christ is the well from which we are to live and love. And I wonder tonight if you want to drink from that well do you want to live from the abundance of God's grace? You need to believe in Christ and believe in the cross. You should read scripture. You should reflect on the person of Jesus. You should reflect on his ministry. You should sing. You should worship. You should pray. You might want to pursue the spiritual disciplines of, of silence and solitude and fasting. And you will drink from the abundance of God's grace. And in so doing, you will experience God's love in Christ. And in experiencing God's love in Christ, you will be empowered by it. So, we are to experience God's love. Secondly, we are to embody God's love in Christ. Well, what is God's love in Christ? Well, if I had to define love, I would say it is commitment to the well-being of something or someone. If you love your flower garden, you are committed to its well-being. If you love another person, you are committed to his or her well-being. And yet it's clear from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus wants our love to transcend ordinary human love. He doesn't want us to love people simply because they love us. Jesus says, even the tax collectors do that. He wants our love to transcend ordinary love, which is to say he wants us to love even our enemies. He wants us to love even those who hate us. He wants us to be committed to the well-being even of those who oppress us who are hostile to us. He wants us to love others, in other words, in the same way that Christ loved us. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, he says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. This is the love that we need to embody, the love of God in Christ. And the point here, you see, is not primarily that we do certain things. 
the primary way in which we love our neighbors as ourselves is not by doing things, but by being a certain person. It's not just about doing loving things, but about being a loving person. We are to live in the mode of love. We are to become loving people so that if you were to bump into us, what spills out is love. If you were to scratch us, we bleed love. And this, in fact, is what distinguishes the Good Samaritan. Some of you here might be familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible. It's a well-known story. What distinguishes the Good Samaritan is not what he did, but who he was. Because we read in the text that when he saw the injured person, he felt compassion. Before he did anything, he was a loving person. So if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, we are to experience God's love, and we are to embody God's love, but perhaps you say to yourself tonight, well, how is it possible to love everyone like this? And the answer is, it is impossible to love everyone like this. We cannot love everyone. Only God can. And so what Jesus asks us to do is not love everyone as you love yourself, but love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, who is your neighbor? So often when we think of neighbor, we think of next door neighbor, don't we? And if that's our understanding of neighbor, we're overlooking the most important neighbors in our lives. You know, the word neighbor comes from an older English expression, uh, which is... Um, let me, uh, the, the boar who is nigh, neighbor, the boar who is nigh, the people with whom we are intimately involved. And who are the people with whom you are intimately involved? Well, they're first and foremost the people living in your house. If you're married, your spouse, perhaps your children, perhaps your parents, perhaps your roommates. Loving your neighbor is primarily loving those with whom you are intimately involved in your own house. Now, I don't know how many of you know the name A.W. Tozer, a famous author. I've read most of his books. I used to quote him. I no longer do. Because I discovered something very troubling about Tozer when I read his biography by Lyle Dorset, And listen to what Dorset says about Tozer. By the early 1928, the Tozers, um, A.W. and his wife, had a routine. He found his fulfillment in reading, preparing sermons, preaching, and weaving travel into his demanding and exciting schedule while Ada, his wife, learned to cope. She dutifully washed, ironed, cooked, and cared for the little ones and developed the art of shoving her pain deep down inside. And she's quoted as saying, 
A.W. loved the Lord. I just wish he loved me. If we start by loving the people with whom we live, most family problems could be resolved and we could begin to love others. And many of you here tonight, I suppose, are familiar with the Ravi Zacharias scandal. And my view of Ravi Zacharias is that he did not love neighbors out there in the world because he didn't love the neighbor closest to him, his wife. So, if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, we need to experience God's love in Christ. We need to embody God's love in Christ, not simply by doing loving things, but by becoming loving people. And that takes time. We talk about the disciplines of the spiritual life. You don't wake up one day and decide you're going to run a marathon, but you practice running, and you practice loving, practice being committed to the well-being of others, until you experience some success, until it becomes a grace-sustained habit. And you begin with those in your home, with your spouse, with your parents, with your children, with your roommate, or, or whoever. And so I think if we move on now to the third point, expanding God's love, we can think of uh, growing circles of spheres, and I think we should begin with the intimate circle of people with whom we are closely aligned. It may only be two people or three people. You should make a list. You should write down their names. If your family has six people, well, then that number is six people. And you ought to think very deliberately about supporting these people, praying for these people, serving these people, developing the habit. And then you might be ready to expand to a wider circle, a friendship circle. Once you're confident that you are loving well and that the people within your family are not being neglected, but are the recipients of your love, and they would say so, themselves. And you can think of a wider circle, probably no more than eight names. Write them down. Think about them. Pray for them. Commit yourselves to their well-being. And when you believe that you've reached a level where this is becoming habitual for you to be loving to friends, you can expand it even to a wider circle of acquaintances and co-workers and neighbors. But practicing love, starting small, and then bringing more people into the range of your love as the habit develops. So anger is a feeling that seizes us, a spontaneous 
emotion. It serves a positive function. The problem is we indulge it. And we are not to indulge it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the fire of anger burn. Or you will become an angry person. Instead, learn to love your neighbor as yourself. First, by experiencing God's love for you in Christ and being empowered by it. Secondly, by embodying that love, learning to love others the way Christ loved you, becoming a loving person. And then thirdly, by expanding that love into widening spheres, bringing more and more people into the reach of your love. Let's pray together. Our loving God, we thank you for the love of Jesus for us, and we pray that that love would be transformative for us, shaping us and molding us into loving people, not individuals who do discreet acts of love, but people who are defined by love. Enable us by means of your grace and spirit to excel in this the greatest of gifts, loving others, so that people in the neighborhood are never hurt, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you will have opportunity to text questions to me, and uh, you can do that while we sing our next song, Psalm 139. We're going to sing from Scripture, Psalm 139, and we're going to sing stanzas 8, 9, and 10 of the rhymed version.
king. Uh, wasn't the beauty of the Good Samaritan that he loved someone outside of any obvious sphere? So in the case of the Good Samaritan, it was somebody with whom he became intimately involved. So he had the choice not to become int intimately involved with him, which is the decision of the priest and the Levite who preceded him, but he became a person with whom he was intimately involved. And I, I think it's helpful for us to reflect on that because it simply isn't the case that the Good Samaritan, that the Good Samaritan could do that every day of his life. He couldn't, he committed to this one individual and that then limited his ability to help other individuals. So he decided, in some sense, who his neighbor was going to be. And I think at one level that sounds offensive to us, but we're limited human beings. We need to care for ourselves. We can only care for so many people. So we do need to decide who our neighbors are going to be. And this is an individual with whom the Good Samaritan became intimately involved. Now my screen is frozen. What is it? Okay. Second here. Next question. Should we choose perfectly, should we first perfect loving those closest to us? Um, oh, sorry. There's a, there's a question that precedes it. So are we jumping the gun when we try to do outreach in our community by loving them? I would say for some people, yes. And hopefully not for all people. Hopefully for a good number of us, we are loving our neighbors closest to us. And if you're loving your neighbors closest to you, you're ready to move on to the next sphere. My point is, if you're not loving those closest to you, you're not ready for the next sphere. And uh, Christian history is riddled with casualties here of people who jumped too quickly from one sphere to another, quickly to do outreach with the neighborhood while neglecting one's family. And it's clear from the Bible in many places that the priority has to be with family. Um, you, you're not qualified to be a leader in the church unless you manage your family well. Minimally, that means loving your family. So by all means, we should do outreach in the community, and hopefully there are many people who are in a place to do that. I am saying that there are some people who are not in a place to do that. My phone doesn't cooperate this one I need to do, so let me see if I can get one more question in here. Um, how do we show godly love and hatred to those who hate us? It's easier to love those near to us, but not those who hate us. I'm not sure it's easier to love those uh, who are near us than those who hate us. Um, the closer you live with someone, in some sense, the more difficult it is to love that person. You are rubbing up against that person all the time. And this happens when couples get married. They date and they're, and they're living apart and all of a sudden they move in together and then it becomes a challenge of a different sort. Um, is it difficult to love those who hate you? Well, of course, in some sense it is. And what does it mean to love those who hate you? Well, minimally, as Jesus says, it means to pray for them. And, and something happens. You know, I talk about God's love and power in us. Something happens 
in our hearts when we regularly pray for those who hate us, when we regularly pray for our enemies. Uh, in, in terms of my pastoral work where I deal with uh, situations where there's friction, where there's breakdown, I sometimes ask the question, are you praying for the person about whom you are concerned about that you believe has been hostile to you or whatever and it changes things and so minimally that's uh, uh, the way we should approach those who hate us okay uh, there is a limit to love God loved uh, J- this is the last question God loved uh, Jacob hated Esau is there a message for us is there a message in this for us regarding loving others mm. I don't know about that. Um, If anything, the example of the Heavenly Father is an example to love others. So if you think Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that um, the Father sends rain on the just and the unjust, and that becomes the basis for loving even one's enemies. The Jacob Esau text is complex. And I would argue that there is a sense in which God profoundly loved Esau, as there is a sense in which Jesus profoundly loved Judas. But uh, Esau and Judas were both responsible for their own rejection of the Lord, and it didn't exclude them from God's love. We have numerous instances of God loving those who rejected him. For one, it says in Ezekiel 33, you know, the Lord says, I do not desire the death of the wicked, but that they should turn from their sins and repent. And we have the famous example of Jesus in Matthew 23, where he weeps over Jerusalem and says, how I wanted to gather you the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus' love and the love of God extends to the whole world. And it says in one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 104, God loves everything he has made. But Jesus, when he implemented a program to transform the world, was selective, chose 12 disciples, and that's it. There was no plan B. And even among the 12 disciples, there were three crucial disciples, Peter, James, and John, who accompanied him Uh, to the Mount of Transfiguration. So even Jesus was selective. He worked with a narrow community, but with a view to those communities expanding and bringing others into the realm of his love. I hope that does something to answer those questions. Well, we don't have a collection in our worship service, but you are encouraged to support the deacons of our church with your financial contributions, the monies that go to the deacons. If you send uh, e-transfer to deacons at blessingshamilton.ca, that goes to the relief of individuals and families who have financial struggles. If you're a guest here tonight, uh, there's no um, expectation that you will contribute, and we're happy that you're here simply to join us for worship. Let's stand for our closing prayer.
dear Lord, thank you for meeting with us tonight in this special way where we could approach you, hear you speak to us through the gospel, be pointed again to the Lord Jesus who loved us with a love so great it defies even our imagination. We pray that in this week we would meditate on that love and be transformed by it. Dismiss us now with your grace as we enter this new week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Receive the Lord's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's conclude this service by singing together, You Are My King.